Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tuasiar in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and as always it's a pleasure to have your company. Well, we all know what's upon us this weekend. We're nearing, or some might say crawling to, the finish line of the Australian federal election campaign. So in this edition of Fourth Estate, we ask, do leaders' debates help the undecided voter? Or are we simply witnessing the argy-bargy replica of question time? Has the Fourth Estate highlighted the issues that are important to voters? And what happens when politicians don't show up? To discuss this and more, we're joined by an esteemed panel. Phil Corey is the political editor at the Australian Financial Review. He's been covering federal politics since he joined The Advertiser in 1998. He then later on went to work for the Sydney Morning Herald as their chief political correspondent in 2006, before defecting to The Fin in 2012, where he spent the last decade. Phil Corey, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you very much. Paul Karp has been a political reporter for Guardian Australia since 2016. He was previously a journalist at Thomson Reuters covering industrial relations for the Workforce News Service. Paul, welcome to Fourth Estate. Cheers, thanks for having us. And Rachel Withers is also with us. Her sharp analysis can be found in The Monthly, where she serves as contributing editor, and she's also the host of the Politics podcast. She's previously freelanced for Slate, Vox and Crikey. Rachel, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me. Now, in this fast-paced election coverage, I should note that we are recording this on Wednesday night, the 18th of May. So let's hop right to it. Let's talk about debates. We had three leaders' debates, uh, one on Sky News, one on the Nine Network, and one on Channel 7. Do you think leaders' debates can, can sway voters in any way? Uh, Rachel, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah, look, I think I think it can certainly sway some people. I think we saw with a couple of the uh, undecided voters who were there as a litmus test for that, some of them had clearly already made up their mind, I think, based on what they had to say afterwards. Um, but I, I do think when it's done right, it can be a really good way for voters to actually hear from the leaders themselves, not through a press conference or through a, a written interview, but to actually um, have them put their policies forward um, themselves. And, and I especially thought that the first debate, the Sky News one, um, was surprisingly the very best one because the voters got to ask the questions themselves. As opposed to the journos. Okay. Uh, That's an interesting point. Phil, uh, as you've previously said, this is your 600th election uh, that you've covered. So what do you think? Do you think leaders' debates, in your experience, can they sway voters? Oh, most definitely, yes. I mean, a lot of people, for a lot of people who don't sort of tune into politics like we do, it's often the first serious look they take at both of them and there's always an element of curiosity over a head-to-head contest and, um, you know, in recent elections we've seen the evolution, as Rachel was saying, of the the People's Forum, which I I think it's good to have a mix. The People's Forums are always good because it's sort of, it's harder to lie or or dissemble or sidestep questions from from a punter than it is a journalist and they're often sort of fairly earthy questions as well. So they're good, but I I also think it's important to have sort of, um, you know, the other format as well where you can get some sort of serious policy questions asked as well um, sort of test them a bit so it's good to have a mixture of both and uh, I thought we sort of had three pretty different debates this this campaign and I think they all, all made a contribution in helping 
uh, form opinions. These debates have, I mean, they've become a regular fixture in the election mm. campaigns, uh, in, in election campaigns in general. But, Paul, do you think they're still relevant? Well, I think it's a shame more people don't watch them and it shouldn't make it hard for people by waiting until after Lego Masters and Big Brother mm. in order to get that information. But I do think they are still relevant particularly because they influence um, the coverage, at least for one news cycle. You know, Anthony Albanese was, um, you know, the first week was the gaffes, unable to remember unemployment and the cash rate. But winning the uh, the first debate, the Sky News uh, debate, did help him sort of break that and, you know, say, yes, he, he is across the detail enough to stand up in an hour-long debate format. So it does influence the coverage. What did you think of the fact that we had, you know, three debates somewhat late at night on commercial mm. broadcasters, none of which on the public broadcaster? Phil, have you ever seen, in, in, in your experience, have, uh, have you sort of seen the, the public broadcaster shunned in such a way before during not, an election not, campaign? Not, yeah, look, not, not so much. I, I think... I think as if as a broadcaster you're going to put your hand in and demand a debate, I think you should at least put it on at a reasonable hour. Um, I mean, the last one on Channel 7 was, oh, I was trying to stay awake for that one. Um, Did look, the game look, show music not help a little bit, the sort of no. you know, build up to the, no? Okay. <laughs> no. Didn't make it more exciting? <laughs> the, 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 thing, the thing that really annoys me, and it happens every single election campaign, it's because the, the major parties can never agree on whether they have this debates commission. I, I would just really like to have... Uh, you know, one debate, you know, at some venue like the National Press Club, the ABC, and let, let everyone take the feed, you know, or, or anyone who wants to, Sky News, the 7, 9, 10, and, uh, and the ABC all take the feed. And people who want to watch it can watch it. And you do it at a reasonable hour, like 7.30 on a Sunday night. I, I think the voters are owed at least that. But it just seems every election campaign, there's this unedifying squabble. The major parties can't agree. Um, they fight over who the, the hosts are going to be. And it's always been thus. This is the first time I think the ABC, the ABC didn't get one last time, but I think they got to televise it from the National Press Club. Um, so it is it is the first time. But I, I don't really see a problem as long as it's on some free-to-air channel. It doesn't have to be the ABC, but it, it should be on at a civil hour. At least the Sky debate was on at a reasonable hour, but but so few people have Sky News, you know, mm. unless you live in the regions where you can watch it free-to-air. Um, you have to have a subscription. So, um, but look, it's it's really beyond our it's really beyond our hands. It's it's really in the hands of the the major parties, but they can never seem to agree. Having one at least on a free to air channel, I'd say even like less and less young people even have access to free to air TV set up in their homes. Mm. Um, I know a lot of my friends would have liked to watch it, and when it came to trying to watch something on even nine or seven, they were scrambling to work out you know an online login or where they could stream it um there's potentially a discussion to be had about having more sort of online young person friendly debate formats as well i managed to live stream it rachel and i'm a thousand years old <laughs> well, we all got there in the end we it did took get me a there while. In the i had to end. download the app and everything but <laughs> do you think a particular channel came out on top for hosting the best quality debate i mean the nine debate was criticized because of all the shouting rachel hmm. were any of them outstanding in your opinion or I think in the end, the seven stood out for the the uh, quality of the the questions and the the policy discussion. Um, and I don't know if that's because they were able to learn from Nine's um, 
what was uh, what was it that Catherine Murphy called it? Um, shitstorm. A shitstorm, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I don't know if if um, opening that with you know asking that they not interrupt each other was a direct result of of Nine's uh, shitstorm, but yeah, I certainly thought Sevens was the one that voters would have been most informed by. You know, whether or not they were still coming back after watching Nines, it's not clear. But um, certainly that one to me. I was able to even glean things about about policies that, you know, I just got nothing from nines. Politicians and candidates are usually quite picky with which media they decide to front up to. I mean, we've seen, you know, politicians politely declining or ignoring and, and point blank refusing to be interviewed by certain media. So, you know, the first one, of course, that comes to mind would be the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He didn't uh, make a final major address to the National Press Club. Mm. And look, as to quote Laura Tingle today, he's the, the first PM in over 50 years to not give this address. What do you think this says about the government's relationship with the media? I'm going to go to you, Paul. Well, I think um, Scott Morrison has a very definite view about who he needs to talk to um, in the final week of, of the campaign. And so I think he's just commercial uh, TV and radio are his main, um, you know, channels to get through to undecided voters and, and who are, you know, low information voters, low engagement voters who don't like politics, who decide at the last minute. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's disappointing for reasons of, you know, lack of transparency that he won't submit himself to all of, all of those, including the ABC. Uh, but, you know, from a, a, a tactical point of view about who he wants to reach, it, it makes sense that he does that, even if we, you know, rightly grumble about it. Phil, do you yeah. think, I mean, obviously you spent many years covering the prime ministership yeah. of John Howard. Now, I, I don't think he was the greatest fan of the ABC's coverage of him, but no. he never failed to front up to them. No, but look, just back to the press club, Morrison is completely entitled to do what he did today. Bill Shorten didn't turn up last time, and, and, and Laura didn't mention that today. It was actually Bill Shorten who broke the convention in 2019. He he vetoed the press club and went and did a went and did a campaign-style rally in Western Sydney on the Thursday before the election and made a point of it. And Scott Morrison said, said to me a couple of weeks ago, well, Bill's broken the convention, so I, I no longer feel bound by it. And it's it was, it was much more, look, this bloke's got, you know, two weeks to live um, politically, he, he has to do what he thinks. They don't owe us anything. I think this sort of preciousness amongst journos is if we're somehow equal or superior to our subject matter, it's not. They don't owe us anything. They're not there to keep us happy. They're there to win elections. If Morrison thought speaking to the press club today or the ABC or whatever was going to help him, he'd do it. But he, he figured his time was better served being in a couple of marginal seats and, and speaking to a business audience in Melbourne. Now, that may be the wrong decision. It was certainly the wrong decision by Bill Shorten uh, back in 2019. But, you know, it was Bill who sort of set the modern president not to turn up. And, um, and you know, Morrison did, did what he has to do. I mean, imagine if he loses the election and he stands up on Saturday night and said, we just lost, but at least I spoke to the press club. You know, it's, it's, it's not his, you know, it's not his priority. He's not here to make journalists happy. He's here to win an election for the Liberal Party. And the same for Albanese. And Albanese, would, obviously, it was in his interest to speak to the press club today. Um, but, mm. you know, I just think we've got to stop being so precious about ourselves. I really do. I, I, I would have much rather the PM turned up and did the press club. 
clearly, but mm. I'm not going to sort of get on my high horse and get all frothy about it. I mean, it's not that we're owed it. Got to cope with it. Yeah. It's not that we're owed it, though, Phil. It's just that it would be better for transparency if he answered difficult questions about his, you know, first uh, home buyer super withdrawal scheme instead of the enormously soft run that he got on Kyle and Jackie O. Uh, it does, but does, but he stands up every day at doorstops and gets asked questions. I mean, he's not like. You know, he took a bunch of questions this morning from you guys in Karangamite. Um, you, know, you could ask him 10 questions on it there. I, 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 I know, but I wouldn't have asked him about that. I would have asked him about something else. But the point being, it's not like they're not making themselves available each day. Both of them are you know, subjecting themselves to pretty lengthy press conferences every day. Rachel, do you agree with that assessment? I mean, you know, some might argue that no, he he doesn't have an obligation uh, to journalists or he doesn't owe anything to journalists as such, but he has an obligation to the taxpaying voter who would hopefully gain something from an address at the National Press Club. I would agree that he doesn't owe journalists that, but I think it's in democracy's interests that um, we do have these forums where um, the candidates can be questioned in a in a probably calmer, um, more detailed sort of way than what we're seeing at the press conferences, where it is just so much shouting and who can get the question in next, um, or you know who the candidate chooses to call on in the press conference, and then you know those have become more and more difficult to watch. And you know, this is the first election that I've been following the day to day you know, minutiae of the campaign and just very little, very little information comes out of that. I, I can see that just for the soundbite in the end that each mm. side is hoping to land their soundbite or each journalist is hoping to land their soundbite. Um, and, you know, it, I think it would just be so much healthier for democracy to have the Prime Minister front up to a forum where he can be asked questions by journalists where all the journalists, well, every outlet um, gets a shot. I don't quite know how exactly the press club um, lineup works, but in a way where it's not who can get their question out the loudest or the fastest or, you know, whoever the candidate has chosen to hear. Um, and I think, yeah, so while he is, you know, fronting up to press conferences every day, I think it's just better that we have these forums that that really help people get information. I think that's what seems to be missing from the entire campaign is like a focus on what is the best way to get information and the most accurate information um, and transmit that to voters so that they can use it. Do you think the media can properly do their job when they're faced with an empty seat? We saw on Tuesday night this week, NITV had their point election special and they had a representative from the Labor Party. They had a representative from the Greens as well. But not only was obviously Prime Minister Scott Morrison not available to NITV, but no representative from the Liberal Party was provided. Paul? Uh, Well, obviously, the empty chair is an attempt to uh, shame the recalcitrant party to to send someone to to, to tell them that, you know, we're not going to cancel this event just because you're not not coming. Um, but you know, if if you have to do the empty chair uh, trick, then 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 the threat hasn't worked. Um, I guess it is uh, disappointing the coalition didn't send someone for the NITV special. I uh, you know, maybe not enough people are across the Indigenous Affairs uh, brief, but that you know that in itself is disappointing. 
You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network and my guests this week are the monthlies Rachel Withers, Guardian Australia's Paul Carp, and the Australian Financial Review's Phil Corey. As we're coming to the end of this election campaign, in what ways do you think the media has actually effectively cut through the political spin? Uh, Rachel, to you first. I have enjoyed sort of some of the media criticism going on in this campaign, uh, Margaret Simon's campaign, for example, and I think um, it is really helpful sometimes to take a step back and and look at what is being focused on or or what is what is being um, covered and how. Unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of journalists in the campaign who are, you know, not particularly interested in in cutting through the games and the spin. They're, they're interested in playing the games and the spin. And I think it would be really useful if we could have more of a conversation. I think about what we're trying to do here, basically. But I think, you know, there's been a lot of defensiveness from from some some corners of the media when it comes to that. Um, I think I've been seeing some interesting things with social media. The Daily Oz, for example, has been sort of trying to do different things and target different audiences through totally different mediums in a way I think that is really new to this campaign. Um, speaking to young people, for example, who are so often not spoken to in campaigns. And I and I don't think the candidates are doing a great job of that themselves, but I think that that is a place where the media has picked up the ball and is, is cutting through and trying to speak to young people about their issues. Phil, what do you think? What are you sort of seeing um, the media <clears throat> effectively cut through on? It's hard to sort of speak for everybody. Um, I know at the Financial Review, you know, right from the outset, we adopted a sort of fairly heavy policy focus. Um, so just, you know, and, and our editor's quite a wonk on policy. So, you know, right at the start when both leaders were sort of making glib assertions and claims, you know, on industrial relations and the economy and stuff like that, we, we would actually sort of test them out a bit, you know. Um, you know, Anthony Albanese might say something, you know, you know, three out of every four workers have, have to have three jobs to survive. And we'd actually go and get the data on that and actually test whether it was true or not. Um, we do, we've done quite a lot of that during the campaign um, because campaigns, uh, you know, by their very nature, tend to be very superficial. Things get said and then not sufficiently tested out. And then the next day, the whole caravan moves on to another topic. I don't know. I've lost count of how many times I've said, you know, the key battleground of this election is X. You know, the key battlegrounds were changing every day and a half. So we, we've made a conscious effort at the AFR to, you know, to sort of just, you know, walk through a lot of this stuff and test a lot of this stuff. And, and, and challenge it. Um, so that I, I can only really, only really speak for us. Others, I, I think others, print media predominantly, you know, online print media have sort of done more of that where the TV, TV coverage has, you know, been a bit more superficial. But uh, it's just, just the nature of campaigns. There hasn't been, you know, a lot of policy detail in this campaign. It's, it's been so personal. You know, it's really been about both candidates sort of engaging in character assassination and so forth. But, you know, we had some good stuff. When, when Anthony Albanese, um, you know, on the fly, you know, advocated a 5.1% wage increase, I mean, it took him three days. He spun his way out of it after about three days. But there were some, you know, propositions that that arose with that, with that proposal that needed to be tested. And it was clear he was sort of making up as he went along and he got his way out of it in the end. But, you know, you don't let these people off lightly. That sort of, They make a big statement. So, you know, it's, it's like everything. In every campaign, some people skate over it. Others, you know, our, our sort of audience is, our readers are sort of, you know, into policy and detail and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So you you just cater for your audience, you know. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, others just go for the gotcha question and 
you know, try and make them look stupid, which we didn't really get involved in. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, some might argue that uh, your economics correspondent, Mr. Misen, didn't really follow that brief. Uh, <laughs> and, and and he learned his lesson very quickly. And I said to Ron, if you weren't on Twitter, you wouldn't ask that question. I said, who were you, who were you trying to impress with that question? You, don't, you only ask those sorts of questions if you're on Twitter. That's why I dumped Twitter 18 months ago. Don't look at it. Can't be bothered with it because it gets into your head and makes you do silly things like that. So right. that was our one example. I honestly thought he was trying to be funny with that question, like because it had been so in the media over the, the previous 48 hours, I think, that the gotcha topic. And I thought it was a little uh, a little funny joke at the end of a serious no, question. He trying, but He was trying to smart-ass him on, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I, I didn't know what he was saying. I said, I didn't know what the WPI was either. <laughs> but, yeah, no, Ron, Ron came back to his tail between his legs and he learned his lesson. Oh. You know, and, and, and and the reporters we've had on the road, we've had people on the road for the entirety of the campaign and they've been under strict instructions. You just, just you know, just behave yourself and be professional and don't become unedifying and, and go for the smart-ass question. Just you know, was, try and get something out of them. It was interesting today that Morrison um, was asked about COVID and looked at his notes and rattled off. Uh, the numbers, you know, deaths uh, in aged care, de- total deaths since the start of the pandemic in the last 24 hours. And it's clear that he'd prepared for a gotcha question. Um, but the, the question wasn't really a gotcha. It was just like, you know, w- w- what are you going to do to try and get the death toll down? And he was trying to impress us all by rattling the statistics off when it wasn't mm. the point. <laughs> mm. Paul, I was actually going to say, uh, talking about uh, the moment for you where the media was really able to cut through the political spin, you literally popped your head through a window today so you could get your question through, hoping to cut through some spin, no doubt. Tell us about that moment and, and how that came about because it's, you know, obviously it's gone off on Twitter and has become sort of the moment of the day. I, I think the moment of the day was Scott Morrison uh, decking uh, a small child. Uh, as oh, well, that's not to be forgotten child. either, no. But, 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 but before before that, there was the win- the window question. So yes. he, he'd taken a, a bunch of questions uh, from his right-hand side. Most of them were about wages. Journalists, once they'd had their question, had moved back. So I got to the front of where he was taking questions from, but he was he was determined not to take it. So I thought, well, I can stand here and shout my head off or I could try something different. I noticed that a few photographers had taken photos of him through that window and I thought, well, okay, well, why don't I just bob up on his left side this time trying the same question where he's not going to expect me. And people were sort of pointing and giggling at me attempting this for one or two questions but before 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 he took it and it, and it worked. I'm, I'm not sure if he knew I was there until it was too late. So there's a lot of criticism, as I guess there usually is, directed at News Corp for the the type of tabloid coverage they've been serving up during this campaign. Uh, Does anybody on the panel think we're seeing anything new here? Uh, Paul, to you? Well, this is my third election. They went pretty hard on Bill uh, at the last um, two elections, so I'm I'm not sure it is uh, anything new. It really depends whether... Labor can um, develop a frame for the election that breaks through uh, what the the conservative tabloids try to tear them down with. So in the 2016 election, the tabloids were smashing them for, you know, all the Labor left candidates that had um, opposed vote turnbacks. But then Labor produced this campaign that was 
you know, an even bigger scare against the the coalition about about Medicare, and then no no one was really thinking about the, these tabloid front pages that had been running for for weeks and weeks in the campaign when they were voting. Um, last election, you know, I I think the 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 coalition's fear campaign on on tax on on labor was was the, the successful frame that people were thinking of as they voted and so the, ta- the tabloid coverage was probably more influential then um this time you know it, it remains to be seen he, albanese certainly seems to have had a pretty rough run one thing i would add there is is that um the australian in particular seems so much more focused on the teal independence than labor at the moment. I mean, they're certainly having a go at Labor as well, but there's this other enemy that they're focused on um, mm. demonising and it's just, you know, column after column dedicated to the idea of the hung parliament, uh, you know, the gridlock, the chaos, or the fact that these independents aren't these real independents. independents. Yes. Fake um, independents, yes. And, yeah, and, and so I think they just, if there's one thing that that the Australian seems obsessed with in this election. It's it's not Anthony Albanese's socialist roots or, um, you know, whatever else we might have been expecting um, because there's this third, this third presence that they seem to uh, have it in for far more than they do for Labor. That's the battle inside the Conservatives. But, look, as to the tabloids, I mean, when I first came to Canberra, you know, in the late 90s, you know, they were just so powerful, uh, the News Corp tabloids and all through, you know, for the... 10 to 15 years after I first got here. I mean, they set the agenda. The Daily Telegraph, whatever was on the front page that day was what the uh, commercial news is ran on their 6 o'clock news that night. But um, I'm sort of with Paul, and, and but I think they lost their influence in terms of the ability to really affect elections uh, first in 2013. If you remember when Anastasia Palaszczuk pulled, pulled off the biggest swing in electoral history and reversed and knocked off Campbell Newman after one term with this massive swing. And I remember watching that election every single day, the Courier-Mail, every single day for 40 days, punched her up on the front page and she won with that swing. And I remember thinking then, and this is sort of as social media was starting to emerge, you know, they're not as powerful as they used to be. And then later that year in the federal election, um, they just went after the federal Labor, um, you know, and Kevin Rudd uh, just knocked off Gillard, and federal Labor held nearly, I think, every single seat um, in Western Sydney which is the telly's market, except for banks. And I think 2013 was the, the year the Murdoch tabloids lost their you know, lost their almighty power, and it's only got less ever since. And I think what we've seen in this campaign is they've become more shrill. Um, they're just going mm-hmm. nuts. They're going absolutely nuts at the moment. <laughs> you know, they're not even mm-hmm. they're not even pretending, you know, in some instances. Um, I, I counted a, a, an opening couple of paragraphs the other day on the Teal Independence. I think there was about six pejorative adjectives in the first two parts. Um, and if anything, I think they actually help help the this, you know, the, the Teals and whatever because they just highlight them. And mm-hmm. um, so to me, it's a, you know, I, I think they, they've just diminished greatly an influence you know Rachel you Paul know a lot better than me that you know people get their news from a lot more broader sources now and and uh, you know social media and so forth and uh, they're just competing in a much larger space and, and sort of yelling louder but not really being noticed you know Labor would prefer it wasn't happening but they're nowhere near sort of worried about it they used to fret they used to fret about the tabloids and keep them awake at night and go and plead with editors for a fair go they don't even bother now that's washes over them well, Albanese has still done um, a couple of a couple of interviews, I think, that mm. have quite upset um, his more 
the more left-leaning Labor voters uh, or, or people further to the left of Labor um, who have been, you know, I think that there is still that obligation to go kiss the ring or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and Albanese is fronted up to the Daily Telegraph with the whole I'm not woke um, <laughs> answered sort of gotcha questions in a different cool. form, but he's he's answered the sort of quick fire, like prove I'm not woke questions. So, mm. like, that is still going on, I think. Look, I know we've we've already touched on gaffes, uh, but Rachel, you highlighted in the politics podcast earlier this month uh, the media's obsession with with tripping up candidates with gotchas and and gaffes to test if you know they quote up to it. I guess now we've seen a decrease in this practice since the start of the election campaign, but it is still it's still prevalent. You know, do you think the media has really listened and responded fairly to the criticism? I mean. You know, only the other week we saw Jonathan Kersley from from Nine at this media conference with Albanese. You know, Albo was there talking uh, to to climate policy, and Jonathan Kersley decided to circle back to the NDIS. It seemed quite clear that he was trying to trip him up and ask him to to list the six points from the Labor Party's NDIS policy document. Albo clearly tried to hold him off until. Uh, an advisor of some sort handed him a policy document and then, you know, it ended in Jonathan Kearsley basically screaming that he, you know, at Albo that he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know the six points to one of his portfolios. He has about 25 that he looks after. You know, again, we seem to, to have the media performing a pop quiz on these leaders and trying to get them to recite what are basically motherhood statements. I mean, they're not the six points of his NDIS plan are very they're very top line things. They're not really going deep on policy or what his overall vision would be for that portfolio. What was seemed ridiculous about those points is um, you know, if you looked at the Labour website, there were 12 dot points and on another page there were 10. And then um I think David Crow mentioned in a in a piece he wrote about it that when they exclusively reported on the policy, there were no dot points at all. So, you know, there was this obsession with a very particular six dot points that weren't necessarily going to tell you anything about the policy, but these were the six points that um, Jonathan Kearsley wanted. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think Paul's right that it does depend, you, your take on on this question sort of depends on whether you thought um, whether you thought it mattered. But I thought what was more interesting was the conversation that took place over the next 24 hours, which was, I saw a lot of the media defending this kind of um, gotcha or not question, but with the, you know bringing up the idea that the media needed to check if Albanese was quote up to it. Um, and I thought, you know, to me that really articulated this sentiment that seemed to be going on that the the media seemed to think that it's their job to to test the opposition leader to see if they can do the job um, when really what does being able to recite dot points or being able to handle a hostile press conference have to do with being the prime minister I mean you could argue yes the prime minister is going to do have to do press conferences but why do we have this idea of a, a hostile media that needs to be handled or stood up to or treated like Xi Jinping according to one questioner you know how does that really give voters any information about what kind of candidate this is and what kind of prime minister they're going to be. I think there's uh, some frustration at Albanese from the, the press gallery because, you know, for years he's run such a small target. You ask him what he thinks about anything, he says, oh, well, it's for the government to solve that. 
Um, and yeah, I, th- I think it was an almost sort of vindictive streak in the in the in the mm. questioning, um, in that they were like so so sick of um, you know him not holding press conferences or, or not answering questions that they're like, right, we're going to get you with you know absolute uh, curly ones that he had a pretty he had a pretty pre run for a number of years. He rarely did press conferences in Canberra. And um, yeah, that's probably the first chance a lot of people have had to go to you know, get a crack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but obviously, then if there's all, been all these years of, of not being able to ask questions, there should be a lot of uh, real questions to ask him. Yeah. Um, and you know, and and there's the the complaint about the um, the small target election campaign as well. But there certainly are policies to ask about. I mean, mm. he was asking about a policy that is a real policy. Um, well, the, but instead of asking about the policy, he wanted to know what the six points were. The, the rule to that, Rachel, is don't have a point plan. They're really lazy. You're going to have one, never have more than three points. Um, anything more than a three-point <laughs> plan is rubbish. I, the, 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 the point you're making, and it's a good point, and one of the one of the problems that's, that, that this election campaign is really exposed is the fact that tele, I'm sorry, press conferences are now televised. Right? They never used to be televised. They've been televised now for the last five or six years. A press conference is just part of a process. It's not, it's not the entirety of what happens, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, Paul and I as sort of print, print, you know, online journalists, we, we don't go to press conferences to, to show off. We go to actually find something out, right? So I might I may ask a question at a press conference, which is I'm writing about something and I need I need more information or I need a quote or they may have announced something and, and they I, I'm you know I want more detail on what they've announced. My, my, my end product is not the press conference. My end product is what appears online and in the paper the next day. So same with Paul, I imagine. But for a lot of TV reporters, it's just become theatre. Yeah, you know, mm. look at me be a be an asshole on TV to the opposition leader or the prime minister, and, <laughs> and on the very first day when um when when Albo got you know got got wrong footed on the unemployment number and the uh, and the interest rate. And, and the journalist who asked that question was sort of lionised as, you know, look what a great job she did. And you could almost hear the executive producers of all the other TV journalists going, we want you doing that too. And it became and it became this sort of screaming over each other to, you know, to put the hard question, as they call it, to, to the say It's not a hard question. It's just an accusation. You know, you're an idiot. Admit it sort of stuff. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't elicit any information or, or help with, with discourse, civil or otherwise. It's just... And then they'll have a cutaway of them on the news asking the question. And I think that's what's really become prevalent in this campaign, especially amongst the TV reporters. And um, I know my colleagues on, on, on the trail have become quite frustrated because you can't get a question in. You know, I'll ring, you know, one of, one of, one of my colleagues and say, look, we need to peg him on Peg Morrison or Albanese on X, Y, or Z for a story we're doing on industrial relations or tax reform or something. And, and it's just really hard actually to get a, a meaningful um, you know, policy-based question in, and uh, and I think the media, is, I think the media as a whole has come off quite poorly. I think it looks bad on TV. I, I know both Morrison and Albanese have been quite sort of perplexed and angered by by the feral nature of the press pack. It's been much worse this this campaign than a- any before it, and uh, I, I, I blame it on, on on just you know it's become live televised sport rather than a genuine exercise in seeking information. Tell them to do the window trick, Phil. Oh, mate, you're... <laughs> that's the best one yet. 
So uh, turning now to the the actual issues at hand, which politicians should be prosecuting, a survey by the Australian National University revealed that the top issues for voters are fixing aged care, the cost of living, the cost of health care and climate change. Now, we've definitely seen cost of living covered by the media, but what voter issues do you think haven't really been covered? Uh, Paul, I mean, for instance, you asked the Prime Minister today about what he's doing to curtail COVID-19 infections and deaths with within Australia. Now, the rest of the media don't seem all that interested in, in covering COVID, but do you think it's actually a, a prevalent issue for voters or are they just as happy to, to forget about that one? No, that that ANU thing had found that it had dropped down well and truly uh, in voters' minds as well. That you know, only thirty percent of people said it was a, a top a, a, a top priority for the incoming government, which is pretty low given you know two years of the, the pandemic being being the number one um, issue. I, I would also say that I think that you know climate hasn't got enough. Uh, attention because you know Labor's policy is more ambitious emissions reduction uh, than the coalition. The coalition does have a split. Um, you know this time in you know Matt Canavan and that that bloke voice uh, is saying that net zero is flexible or it's dead. Um, you know whereas they've got the opposite message in the inner city. So you know I I think. That there needs to be more focus on climate, especially given how central it's going to be in any negotiations if there were a hung parliament. Rachel? Yeah, look, I would say that one big one for um, a large part of the campaign was the women's issues um, that I think so many people expected or hoped would be a large part of this campaign. It really hasn't been. Um, obviously, that issue dropped off the radar Um slowly over the past 12 months, um, even from day one with sort of Alan Tudge's status as a minister um, being in question, it seemed like it was going to be a big part of the campaign, but it's just the reckoning we had hasn't really featured a lot in this election. That's not actually on ANU's list of of topics, um, so I don't know where it fits in there, but um, I do know certainly that it hasn't featured in the way that I think a lot of advocacy groups and and just women expected it would. And we've seen there are like some great um, women for progress did a scorecard that came out the other day and that got that got a little bit of coverage. Um, but ultimately it's not really something, it's obviously not something that the coalition has wanted to talk about. Um, and but it's also not really something that the Labor Party has chosen to particularly highlight either. So no doubt all eyes will be on the polls in the next few days. Do any of you have faith in the news polls this year? I mean, they've uh, let many of us down over the last number of years. Uh, The latest reserve poll today, of course, uh, has got a lot of people talking, which predicts that Labor's lead against the coalition is definitely narrowing. But that's that's from the reserve poll. Now, there there are questions around the methodologies that they use. Reserve don't allow public scrutiny of their numbers or their methodologies, and they're also not a member of the industry body, the Australian Polling Council. Yeah, I'm just choosing to to really not think about about it too much. I've, there's been so many things written about um, polling, you know, methodology and hmm. how it's been how it's been fixed, but I think they're just so hard to really place any stock in now, even when you can see the whole methodology written out. 
Uh, no, look, look, I disagree, Rach. I, you know, the problem with the last election wasn't the polls. It was the way they were written. Um, the, 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 there's a very strict discipline when you write polls. And, uh, you know, when I first started writing for the Sydney Morning Herald, the Nielsen poll, there was only two polls. There was ours and the news poll in the Australian. And, and you know, there was these sort of certain rules. You never you never predicted from a poll. Poll was always a snapshot. So, yeah, this is what might happen if the election was held today. It could be no more definite than that. Um, yeah, you mentioned margins of error. You didn't you didn't make too much of a one or a two point shift because it was margin of error. They're nothing more than a rough guide of a moment in time. And what's happened is they've become very cheap and easy to do, and they're not. And a lot of them aren't very good. Um, and basic rules about sample size have been ignored. I mean, you should really never trust a poll with a sample size less than one thousand, whether it's in a marginal seat or nationwide. And I remember in the last election especially, there were a dime a dozen of these things, you know, robo-polls, 300 people in a seat, and they weren't assisted. Assisted polling, if you, you, you do a poll in an electorate, you really need to mention the names of the uh, candidate. You say, you know, Fred Nurk for the Labor Party and, you know, Mary Bloggs for the Liberal Party. You just, if you just say Labor and Liberal, you get a Morrison-Albanese-type answer. The methodology has to be really good. The reporting has to be judicious. What we saw today is three separate polls. Now, they're all different numbers, but what is consistent is that they've all closed. So Resolve is only relative to Resolve because Resolve has its own methodology. So you can't compare Resolve to News Poll. But if Resolve tightens from the previous Resolve and the Morgan Poll tightened from the previous Morgan Poll and the Essential Poll and the Guardian tightened from the previous Essential Poll, which is what happened today, all three of them did that, now, they, they had a two-party ranging from 51 to 54, I think it was, or 53. That's only a two-point spread, but you can take it to the bank. There's been a tightening, but you can't take it to a bank which, which number is actually right. So it's accurate to report Morrison is coming back, but you can't say any more than that. And I think this is where people get themselves into trouble saying, you know, Morrison's going to win or Labor's still going to win. And, you know, it's just some very irresponsible reporting of polls in the last election has, has really given them a bad name. Yeah. So the other thing too is, yeah, the, the national number becomes less relevant the closer you get to election, mm-hmm. because I mean the, the major parties don't poll everything. They, I think the Libs are doing twenty seats and the Labor's doing twenty seven seats. Called what's called the track, they track the twenty or the twenty seven most marginal seats only. They don't they don't worry about the rest of the electorates, right? Because the the elections won or lost in the margin. Well, to end on, I'm going to ask all three of you a question that I'm sure none of you really uh, want to to have to answer or or put your names to an answer. Predictions. What do we think is going to happen this weekend? Rachel, who do you think Australians are going to be waking up to as their Prime Minister on Sunday morning? Look, it's it's hard not to respond um, too dramatically to that that poll that came out, there's several polls that came out this morning that, that really saw it, things tighten. I think prior to that, I would have said it was probably going to be a Labor majority. There's just, it was looking like there were so many seats. Um, they were in a cha- in with a chance of picking up and just very few for the coalition um, to get back. But yeah, after that, that latest poll, and we don't put too much stock in polls, but um, I'm thinking it's more likely going to be a, a hung parliament. It'd probably be Labor in the driver's seat, but um, I think we're back in hung parliament territory. Paul? 
I've been saying for most of the campaign, I feel like uh, the 2020 presidential election um, where Biden was further ahead of Trump than Hillary was. And so it would take a poll, a polling era even larger than 2016 for, for Trump to win. The polls started further apart than they were last time in 2019. So it, it looks like a larger polling era would have to have taken place for, for Morrison to, you know, come up with the second miracle um, in the same way Trump would have did an even larger polling era in 2020 to, to, to beat Biden. Um, but I recognise that polls have narrowed. I, I still think a slim Labor majority. And Phil? Yeah, I, I agree with the others. I think, yeah, hung Parliament with Labor in the driver's seat um, or a slim Labor majority. But just something has been eaten away at me for months and months and months, and the Labor just has not done the work to put this, you know, to put this election away. So um, I still think there's probably a twist or turn left that you know may surprise us. But if I, yeah, I have to make the decision now on Wednesday night, I would call it yeah, Labor by a nose. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank my guests this week on Fourth Estate, Rachel Withers. No worries. Paul Carp. Cheers. Thanks for having us. And Phil Corey. Uh, pleasure. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe, and catch us next time on Fourth Estate.